Nearly 2 million Americans are abusing prescription opioids, costing the U.S. economy $56 billion and U.S. employers $10 billion annually. The cities and towns across the country that are most heavily impacted by this public health crisis are also facing high rates of unemployment and underemployment. But if whole communities are facing ever-rising rates of drug addiction, how can anyone pass a drug test to get a job in the first place? This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. Once the jobs go away, so do the people. It certainly is a different America. There's opportunities here that are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to LinkedIn's Work in Progress, a podcast on issues impacting the future of the working world. I'm your host, Senior Editor Caroline Fairchild, covering tech and startups for LinkedIn. And I'm LinkedIn Managing Editor Chip Cutter. I'm heading up a year-long reporting effort where I'm traveling across the country to talk to people about what it means to earn a living now. This week, we're tackling a problem that's impacting employers, workers, and the unemployed across the country, the opioid epidemic, which includes everything from prescription painkillers to more illicit drugs like heroin, is claiming more lives across America than ever before. Drug deaths in the country are rising faster than ever, and overdoses are now the leading cause of death among Americans under 50. Meanwhile, those who are addicted have difficulty holding down a job. More than 70% of U.S. employers are dealing with the direct impact of prescription drug misuse in their workplaces. This is an issue that's coming up in my travels and in discussions with people across the country. You hear this familiar line when you talk to a small business owner or someone who's trying to hire. And it's that the jobs are there, but it's hard to find someone who's either willing or able to pass a drug test to get it. And Ohio's Attorney General Mike DeWine put a number to this problem when he appeared before a congressional hearing in June. I do a kind of a little quiz when I talk to employers and I say, what if you drug, do you drug test? And if they say, yes, I drug test, I say, well, what percentage of the people who come in here and you tell them they have to take a drug test leave before they take the drug test? And then add to that the percentage of people who come in here and are so arrogant or stupid or both that they take, they take the test and fail it. The average that comes back when you put those two numbers together almost every single time is 40 percent. So 40 percent of applicants either refuse to take or fail a drug test. That's a really big number. And at some employers that we've talked to, they say it's even higher for them. And after hearing stats like that, we wanted to learn more about the relationship between drug addiction and employment. A lot of people turn to drugs because they're lacking meaning in their lives. But do they also do it because there are no jobs in the area? Or are the drugs preventing them from getting a job in the first place? How does this crisis start? It starts, of course, with jobs departing. And when that happens, it's the beginning of of the decline. That's where it starts. Because then once the jobs go away, so do the people. And uh, a street of homes, modest homes owned by workers at several factories uh, in or plants or what have you in in the area, once those, those factories go away, are replaced by either renters or nobody at all. Those houses are, you know, empty. They're, they're abandoned. And that also leaves fairly ominous feeling in the, in the minds of a lot of people that nothing's going well and, and there's nobody around and everybody else has left. And, and so the, the momentum is to everybody to, to, to leave. And the folks who don't leave, frequently, I would say some of the folks who don't leave are, you know, caught up in that negativity. 
That was our first guest this week, Sam Quinones. He is a journalist and the author of Dreamland, an Amazon book of the year in 2015 that traces America's opioid addiction from small towns in Mexico all the way to the role Big Pharma played in it. I read Sam's book at the end of last year, and when I knew that we were doing an episode on this topic, I reached out. Dreamland does a great job of outlining how exactly heroin trafficking from Mexico and overprescription of prescription painkillers led to the drug crisis that we're dealing with today. If there's anyone that can help connect the epidemic back to the current state of the American workforce and what's going on with jobs, it's Sam. Research has shown that as unemployment raises by just 1% in a county, the opioid death rate increases by nearly 4%, and visits to ERs for opioid overdoses rises by 7%. So you can see the link here. So how do jobs and addiction really go together, and how might we begin to address this issue? Sam, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Work in Progress. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your book does a great job of outlining how this has become a nationwide epidemic. And I I love actually the way that you start off your book with this idyllic scene from the Dreamland Pool in Portsmouth, Ohio. How did you even hear about that place? Uh, Spending time in Portsmouth. I initially uh, planned to spend two visits to Portsmouth to write about the pill mill thing. Uh, That was the capital and and the birthplace of the pill mill. These pain clinics that uh, look on the outside like a doctor who's, uh, you know, treating people's pain inside, though, it's really just a big, massive scam kind of to prescribe, uh, sell prescriptions. And so the doctor is seeing patients one every minute and a half and giving them a pill prescription uh, and they're out to go. And these things grew up in, in, in Appalachia first and in Portsmouth is where they, they really Started and as I spent time there, I began to realize um, the, the town was a fascinating, had a fascinating story. It was a Rust Belt town, lost its all the many of the factories, lost half its population. It was a town that had been thriving for 70, 80 years, 90 years, and then all of a sudden everything begins to just fall apart right about 1980, and for the next 20, 30 years it just disintegrates. Well, one of the things that really held the town up together was this beautiful football-sized swimming pool called Dreamland. And it was where people, uh, when the town was doing well, and when people saw each other, they grew up. There was a communal aspect to, the, to life in that town. As the town begins to fall apart, as the jobs leave, as the people leave, well, there's no way to support the pool. And in 1993, the pool is dug up and replaced with a strip mall. And to me, this left the town extraordinarily vulnerable. It was like stripping away a kind of a societal immune system. Something that held the town together was no longer there. The town begins to disintegrate uh, in many, many ways, and it becomes very vulnerable to opiates, which are then being promoted heavily in, in that region. And when that happens, an entire generation begins to get, get, get addicted. You talk about the jobs going away and that being an integral component to this feeling of community going away as well. From your reporting, how commonplace is this degradation of small-town America happening at the hands of the drug epidemic? I think they do, do lose something essential when you lose work. You lose something that bonds people. It's not just the money. It's certainly that, of course. But it's also something that bonds people, that makes people feel uh, like the world is right, that things are going well. And then on top of that, when you add a, another layer of inertia and negativity like opiates bring to the picture, it's even uh, the spiral really accelerates where people don't feel anything is going right. And a lot of the people they knew who were stand up citizens, now they're out stealing copper wire somewhere and no one's adding to the positive 
direction of the town. Everyone's kind of feeling negative. There's a lot of finger pointing. This is what happened in Portsmouth and many of these towns that lost so, such fundamental parts of their community. First, the factories, then the people. Then, as I say, the, the, the thing that, that holds people together is the place where they see each other in public. I want to play a clip from another person I talked to. Her name is uh, Elizabeth McElvain. She's a fourth-generation owner of a company in Newell, West Virginia. They produce that Fiesta Ware line of pottery, that kind of colorful line of pottery. They employ about 850 people in this region, uh, so they're a big employer. Um, And what what I heard from her was was interesting. I want to get your take on it and go back to this idea of of how this is really just affecting employers uh, and, and what they're dealing with. I'd say over half didn't pass a drug test wouldn't take the drug test, or refused the drug test, or didn't show up when, when they were um, called to take a job. If they pass a drug test, keeping them here at work sometimes is a challenge. She's in a region that's really struggling with the drug problem. Uh, she says that that's created other problems. I mean, is this, does this kind of align with what you found in your own reporting? In many counties, you talking 50 to 70 percent of the people who, who would be the applicants for some of these more uh, lower rung jobs cannot pass a drug screen. This is a business story. I'm surprised when I hear a business organizations in a, in a town or county uh, be really reluctant to want to talk about this topic because this is a, such a business story. It's a really important business story because you're seeing people who, who, who uh, ought to be the applicants for these jobs uh, uh, unable to get them or simply not applying. They're just so strung out, they don't even bother. The idea of holding down a full-time job is beyond what they're capable of when they're on dope. But I would also say something else, that once you begin to create the culture of recovery in a community, all of a sudden you, you get a new jolt of energy. It's the same people, but they're now in recovery. And I have found that people in recovery are more energetic, more dynamic, uh, more grateful, work harder, were willing to endure smallish problems that maybe once they complained about, uh, all because they are, are grateful for a second chance and they understand how close they came to really completely destroying everything. And you've written that, you know, while reporting this book, you were struck by just, you know, kind of how un-American the opiate crisis is. Um, you said it's really the opposite of the American idea. I think what I meant by that was that we are a country where I think uh, control of our own future, of the individual's future, the common man's future, his own control of his own future is what motivates this country and what makes it great. And it's frankly what motivates immigrants to come here, because so many immigrants come from areas where their, their future is controlled by somebody else. I know this definitely from living in Mexico, and I can extrapolate to other immigrant uh, groups uh, as well. So the, the opiate addiction uh, epidemic is the opposite of that. It's where something else controls your future, controls your decisions. It's dope. It's drugs. It's a substance. And it seemed to me, as I got far into this book, that that was, some, in some sense, un-American. You know, it was some, in some way that wanting to get, giving up, relinquishing control of your own future was not what this country was founded on. And it seemed to me that, that, that part of the American dream was that every person for all the faults and, and, and imperfections uh, we, of course, have, that, every, that people had more control over their, their future. And this was a very appealing uh, idea. And, and whether or not the American dream exists today, in, to some degree, has to do with whether or not people feel 
that they do in control, uh, uh, to, to some extent anyway, the, the, their own future. I don't know. Certain groups may feel they do and certain may, may feel they don't. And Sam, this is an issue that is not new. The drug crisis has impacted the American economy for many decades now. What do you see as the best potential solutions? You see, people, people ask me when I talk in public, I do this a lot, and people say, what's the solution? And I say, there is no solution. There is no solution. There are many small solutions, all of which need to be tried. It's remarkable the talent that, that resides in so much of America but has been working in silos, isolated, again, from each other, not knowing much about each other, even though they live in the same town or county. And uh, bringing all that together is there is no silver bullet solution to this problem. The, the, the way you defeat a problem that thrives on isolation is through community and small things, nothing sexy. That's the good part. We should be very, very suspicious from now on about anything that seems sexy, like a one-size-fits-all answer to all our problems. The more I dug into the topic, the more immersed I got in it, the more I realized that to write about heroin in America, heroin today is to really write, what you're really doing is writing about America, who we are, what we become, major, huge issues of, of like community, economic development, but also how do we achieve happiness? What, what, what uh, can human beings have at all? Uh, and, and these are major topics I did not think I would be encountering uh, when I started the book, which I thought was going to be mainly a, a drug trafficking book. And it turned into something much deeper because it affects it's, it's about who we are as a country and what we become as we decide that this self-reliance means that I don't need anybody but, but myself. So to write about heroin today is really to write about America. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. I hope we find some of these solutions together. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, your interest. That was Sam Quinones talking to us about the opioid epidemic in America and how it's impacting our workforce. Caroline, it's pretty clear to me that high unemployment rates and the lack of opportunity in some of these cities is really having an impact on the rise of drug addiction across the country. Yeah. And what Sam had to say about drugs isolating people as opposed to work, which brings people together, that really struck a chord for me. We talk a lot about how work obviously puts a paycheck in your pocket and brings some meaning into your life if you like what you do. But it also means a guaranteed network of people that you have to have at least something in common with. To take that away from the subset of a population that is addicted to drugs, of course, it's going to have an impact on communities across the country. But as Sam mentioned, there's really no single solution to this. It's going to take a lot of different approaches, a lot of experimenting from different people and different communities to really kind of get our arms around this. But what are these solutions really? This is a problem that we've known about for years and we haven't even made a dent into it. This is a topic that actually came up when I was speaking with a couple of VCs recently in the Valley, and they told me about a startup that's looking for for-profit solutions to the drug crisis. Our next guest is Jeff DeFlavio. He's the co-founder of Groups, a startup that's providing treatment and recovery from opiate use across several states. For $65 a week, you can get access to therapy and medication. But what's different about Groups approach is that you can also get access to group counseling, similar to other programs like AA. Most programs for opioid addiction, you actually meet alone with a physician, but Groups is trying to provide a community-based solution to addiction, which we know from talking to Sam is so important. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What inspired you to launch groups and what exactly is it? 
the mission of groups is to provide affordable and accessible evidence-based care for opiate addiction in rural America. So really small towns all across the country where other providers haven't been able to go um, and where the epidemic is worst. We are a for-profit company, and I think it's, it's good to kind of point that out. I mean, I came into medicine really um, focused on healthcare as a human right, and what I've tried to do with groups is in a environment where all of the medical care that's delivered is really private and for-profit, how do you, how do you build a mission-driven organization that can um, help people you know, rebuild their lives and recover from uh, something that's impacting not just them, but typically their entire community? What's the structure for how you keep the operation open? I started the medical practice myself when I was a student at Dartmouth Medical School, actually. Um, so I launched it with a professor of mine um, who was in the process of retiring. And we've grown um, organically um, for a long time. And we have taken uh, some VC financing in the past um, couple of years. And that's helped us really align our mission with the needs of our patients. And um, right now, we're actually making a really important transition. Um, we're going to begin accepting insurance for our care. As you know, this podcast is mostly about the future of work. And we know from studies and research that people who are meaningfully employed derive a lot of happiness and self-worth from their jobs. Uh, from your experience, does unemployment lead some people to pick up drugs or addiction in the first place? Or how do these two things feed into each other, drug addiction and unemployment? I'm so happy that we're we're talking about that because I think the the relationship goes both ways. Uh, you know, drug addiction does certainly sometimes cause unemployment, but what I think we've really seen is an opiate epidemic that was created by you know big pharma and um, and you know huge fines were paid for the false research that was generated, but it really feasted on this underlying economic um, and social terrain that has deteriorated tremendously in rural America. Unemployment um, rates in Appalachia and West Virginia in particular have been the highest in the nation for 50 years. So it really shouldn't be any surprise that that has been one of the epicenters of the opiate epidemic. Um, when, you have peop when you have a society where we really define ourselves by work and leisure time is kind of this very complicated object these days. Oftentimes folks that have less seem to have more leisure time. It's kind of counterintuitive, but... Um, that kind of lack of work and lack of access to developing human capital and, and securing gainful employment has absolutely driven the hopelessness and despair that's at the center of the drug abuse epidemic. We spoke with you know, the mayor of one of these towns that I visited. Uh, his name is Ryan Stovall. He's the mayor of, of East Liverpool, Ohio. He made the point to me that nobody sets out to be a drug addict, but what are, what are the alternatives? And I kept talking to people in towns and he kept hearing phrases like, we're stuck on stuck or that there's just nothing here. Um, so here's uh, Rich Anderson. He's the owner of an antique shop in town. They're in a place where there's nothing. You know, I mean, the young people, if they don't leave this town and they don't, I mean, some of them, like my kids, that most of them left, but my boy's still here and my daughter and they're, they've got good life because they make good money. You know, I mean, they got good jobs. They don't work here, but they, uh, but most of them leave because if you don't get out of this town, you'll end up with like the rest of them because there's nothing here, no place to work. I mean, if you want to bum around on it, you know I mean, that's what you'll be, a bum. What are you going to do? You know I mean, you got to have work. When you are in this kind of cycle of 
high unemployment, also high rates of addiction. Kind of what do you do to, to get out of that? These are questions that extend far beyond opiate addiction or even work to some extent. I mean, there are questions about how the how the economy is structured and what um, what type of labor um, folks, you know, capital needs to, to, to be productive. And it's been the case that um, there have not been, you know, jobs created in these, in these communities. They've, they've been net uh, losers of, of jobs and capital for decades. So, and it's, it's a very similar story all across, um, you know, what I really think is a post-industrial American landscape where it's a ball bearings factory or a paper factory um, or a coal mine that's no longer no longer employing people. And what you've seen is the folks that could get out um, to some extent did from certain small areas and other people are, other people are still living there. And I think that, I think that the main, the biggest challenge is that, um, you know, that's, we all have a home and it's reasonable. We should be able to live there and work. And I think what's so interesting here is that it, it is almost like a double-edged sword because a lot of these communities that are suffering from drug addiction crises are also having structural unemployment. And then on top of that, the recovering addicts might have felony charges on their record or something that's making it even harder for them to get employment. Connect this back to us for us about the difficulty that people who are recovering from drug addictions have finding work on top of everything else that might be going on in their hometowns. Well, the barriers are immense. As we all know, um, folks that work lower paying jobs have way less autonomy. It's also just this entire regimen of kind of biopolitics that workers are subjected to. If Google couldn't hire people who failed drug tests, um, you know, I don't know. I think a lot of people are probably taking Adderall and smoking pot. You know, the the knowledge workers are just not subjected to the same types of strictures that... um, folks with less mobility and less power are subjected to. So I think that the labor conditions that you see where people can't get work um, because they have a felony conviction, they can't pass a drug test, I don't think that that really has anything to do with their character or even their ability to be a good worker. I do recognize that people who have substance abuse problems um, certainly are going to miss more work, and I understand why employers would be hesitant to hire hire them. Um, But that doesn't necessarily – I mean – that only has so much to do with, with failing a drug test, which is what, you know, it comes down to at the end of the day. I have a feeling that this is something that probably comes up a lot in these sessions that you have with recovering addicts in terms of where they can find work and how they can find work. Yeah, we spend a lot of time in our group therapy sessions talking about where people can find employment and oftentimes the best resources are the people who are trying to navigate that labor market. Um, it doesn't really matter who you are, I think. Um, your social network is central to, I mean, this is a good place to talk about that, is central to, uh, is central to finding employment. And um, the types of knowledge that you need to navigate those networks really changes depending on whether your employment is legal or illegal, whether you're a felon or not, um, all these different, all these different considerations. So what needs to change to fix this problem? What does either the public or private sector need to be doing differently to change this dynamic? The types of care that are paid for are not the types of care that providers are actually able to give. They are, they're, they're literally asking physicians to bill for things that they have not been trained to do. We need flexibility. Um, the government has just been caught totally flat-footed in the face of a decades-long explosion 
in opiate addiction because there's so little flexibility in the funding mechanisms to really respond to public health crises. The government has totally abdicated its role in providing healthcare to people, really. Um, it's, it's truly outsourced everything. So it doesn't, it, it needs to restore some level of flexibility to its payment mechanisms um, because there is, there's no way that we would be able to respond to the next crisis either, whatever it may be. After six months at groups, 85% of patients are totally abstinent from opiates. 95% of patients attend counseling each week. You guys are in Indiana, Ohio, New Hampshire, Maine, and you're opening soon in California and Illinois, right? That is correct. Best of luck with that, and thanks so much for joining us on Work in Progress. I'm sure this conversation will be continued. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's flattering to be asked. Thank you. That was Group's co-founder, Jeff DeFlavio, talking to us about ways he thinks employers can be less impacted by the drug crisis across America. Chip, what do you think? Do there need to be more for-profit solutions to this problem? It's hard to argue with those results. Groups might be small, but they're curing 85% of patients from addiction. That sounds like a solution that perhaps more parties should be looking into, right? Definitely. And in a lot of these communities hard hit by the drug crisis, they're just looking for any solution, whether that's for-profit or non-profit. Maybe it's faith-based attached to a local church in the area. They just want to see some results. They want their communities to be able to turn a corner. So if groups can scale, it sounds like they might be able to help more communities. But when you travel, do you hear of any other inventive solutions to what's going on right now with the drug crisis? Well, I talked to Dennis McCann, and he's the head of an economic development commission in southeastern New Hampshire. This is an organization that primarily makes loans. So say you're a new business, you want to open up in town, you might go to Dennis's organization for help. So he's not in the treatment business, but he's actually taking the kind of rather extraordinary step of hiring someone to work directly with rehab centers in the area to help them get on more solid footing. And it's because so many employers have told him that they just can't find local help. They can't find people there to work at their businesses. So if you take his case where he's a lender, you can easily see that it might be harder to make loans if the businesses simply don't have the people to be able to operate or expand. And he told me something really interesting about how this problem is playing out in his state. I think that if you went to any of the tourist-oriented areas, you'd see people that were here on temporary visas from other countries. Uh, particularly um, Caribbean, um, Eastern Europe, uh, but from many other parts of the world as well. Um, That's what we see around here. In other areas, it may be people from other countries. So he's saying that companies are having to go overseas to find workers. They're having to cast a wider net to get people to work at these companies. Is this a skills gap that we need to start talking about within these communities where they can't find people to fill jobs because of the drug crisis? I think it is. It is a skills gap. And you hear employers kind of framing it in that perspective. It's a readiness gap. In a lot of these places, you just can't find eligible workers who are available to take these jobs. So if we have people like Dennis McCann, who's the head of an economic development commission, looking into solutions to the drug crisis, don't we need to expand what the definition of the opioid epidemic is? It's certainly a public health crisis. I don't think anyone's arguing against that. But this could also be an economic crisis, something that more institutions looking for solutions to unemployment and underemployment need to be thinking about. That's right. So yes, it's absolutely a health problem and we need to think about it that way. But I think by also framing this in terms of an economic issue as a business story, I think we might be able to move forward to turn a corner. And 
by focusing on jobs, that could be a way to help these communities get on more solid footing. So the opioid epidemic, a public health crisis, but also an economic crisis as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes. Also, we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues we've discussed on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. If you go to LinkedIn right now, we have a great discussion on the platform about this very topic with experts in healthcare, as well as the guests on the show talking about the issues themselves. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter in his travels, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show was produced by Flo Ariando and Dave Pond. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>